Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 133. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekindoubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, still think it should be Android device, Kindle, or MP3 player. All right. What's that strange music, you say? Well, that's a 16th century Spanish Christmas carol called Rio Rio Chio, uh, one of my favorites. And you guys know me, hopefully by now, just about as skeptical as they get, staunch non-believer, but still a sucker for Christmas. But just between you and me, don't tell anyone, a lot of it's pagan anyways. All right. Today, I'd actually like to give a shout out to a fellow podcaster. Someone who goes by the Twitter handle, The Mad Humanist, uh, fittingly enough, uh, also the host of a podcast entitled The Mad Humanist, got in touch with me via Twitter and asked if I'd uh, check out his podcast and give him some uh, feedback or kind of a review. So I checked it out and I really liked it. He's got a great voice. He kind of sounds like a, a kindly wizard. (laughs) hopefully that doesn't sound condescending it's meant to be a a compliment i'm not sure if maybe uh he's british or australian i apologize if i am completely off the mark with your uh nationality but he really has this great voice Uh, almost sounds like he should be narrating audiobooks very intelligent and insightful guy um And as you would imagine, he discusses a variety of humanist topics and his narration or commentary is kind of uh, interspersed with kind of clips of controversial fundies saying crazy stuff. Uh, (laughs) I've only listened to one episode so far, but I thought it was great. And when I'm done recording the show, I'm probably going to subscribe through iTunes myself um, and I'll probably also give him a review. But once again, it was the Mad Humanist podcast, and um, I like helping out people in the uh, kind of non-believer slash humanist uh, community. If there's any of you guys out there who are also trying to start your own podcast or have some kind of endeavors that you're working on and you're looking to kind of get some advice or feedback uh, from someone or you'd like a shout out, uh, just let me know. Okay, but now back to my podcast, all right? I know some of you guys find my corrections or my mea culpas kind of tedious, but so be forewarned, this is going to be one of those shows. Before we get started, I have some kind of corrections or clarifications to uh, sort out. Last week, I discussed the story of an anti-gay preacher who made some nasty comments about homosexuality and people living with AIDS. Uh, So as you might imagine, I took him to task and discussed the ways in which AIDS is a virus that can affect anyone, not just gay males. I guess what I wanted to clarify what I'm apologizing for is 
perhaps not going thoroughly enough into the ways that straight people, uh, that anyone can contract HIV AIDS as well. I think I didn't want to feed any anti-gay AIDS paranoia, so I didn't go into the tainted blood transfusion scare back in the uh, 1980s. Uh, two well-known cases of individuals who contracted HIV through transfusions are Ryan White, uh, a young teenager who received a tainted blood transfusion while being treated for hemophilia, and a famous pro tennis player named Arthur Ashe. It's thought that Ashe received a bad transfusion during a, a cardiac surgery. Unfortunately, Arthur Ashe passed away uh, in 1993, at the relatively young age of 49, and Ryan White died when he was just 18 years old in 1990. I think Ryan White in particular really became kind of the poster child for HIV and how it wasn't just a gay disease. It was a virus that could affect anyone, even children. Uh, another way the virus could be transmitted that's unrelated to sexual behavior, of course, is intravenous drug use. And also it should go without saying that it's not just males that fall victim to HIV AIDS. And that leads me to some stats. Um, this is from Wikipedia and there are some citations. The cumulative number of deaths in the U.S. due to causes related to AIDS is estimated to be more than 650,000. The cumulative number of estimated AIDS cases in the U.S. is estimated to be 1.8 million. Over 1.1 million people are estimated to be currently living with HIV in the U.S. About 50,000 people are infected with HIV in the U.S. each year, a number which has remained fairly steady over the last decade. UN AIDS, or is it UNAIDS? <laughs> no joking matter, I know, but it's an acronym, U-N-A-I-D-S. Uh, and I believe it's um, a United Nation AIDS organization. <laughs> but anyway, uh, UN AIDS estimates that there are a total of about 1,200,000 people in, in the U.S. living with HIV as of 2009, and that 310,000 of these are women, females 15-plus years of age. And I just found an official CDC link that has an interesting breakdown based on sexual orientation, etc. And once again, the reason why I'm rehashing all of this and spending time talking about a subject that's a bit off topic is because last week I was going to combat the bigoted anti-gay views of a preacher by the name of Donnie Romero, who called gay people quote-unquote dirty faggots and said, uh, citing Leviticus, one of my favorite books of the Bible, sarcasm intended. And, and here's his quote. It was right there in the Bible all along. It's curable right there. If you executed the homos, his words again, like God recommends, you wouldn't have all this AIDS running rampant. Uh, obviously a loathsome individual. I wasn't even going to mention his name again, but I decided to throw it out there again for the uh, public shame factor. Uh, I'm not uh, above that. Although I'm not sure if this guy is even capable of feeling shame. But who knows, though? Perhaps he uh, protests too much. He might be uh, repressing something himself. And that reminds me of a story I just heard yesterday on the Young Turks about some kind of rabid anti-gay preacher or pastor who ended up uh, getting arrested, I believe, after going uh, approaching a male stranger in a car, reaching through the window and grabbing his genitals. 
<laughs> um, so maybe there is something to um, the idea that this guy might be protesting a bit too much. And I'm also rehashing this because I thought, as I said previously, I could have done a better job of describing how AIDS isn't just a quote-unquote gay disease. Although, as stated last week, because of the fact that anal intercourse, sorry if I'm being uh, graphic once again, makes the transmission of the disease easier, um, and we do tend to see higher numbers among gay and bisexual men. But speaking of that, uh, I'll move on to those CDC stats. So here's the CDC's quote-unquote fast facts. More than 1.2 million people in the United States are living with HIV infection, and almost 1 in 7, 14%, are unaware of their infection. Uh, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, particularly young, black, African-American um, men, are most seriously affected by HIV. By race, black, slash, African-Americans face the most severe burden of HIV. It says uh, the CDC estimates that 1,201,000 persons aged 13 years and older are living with HIV infection. 13 years or older, wow. Including 168,300, 14% who are unaware of their infection. Over the past decade, the number of people living with HIV has increased. Well, the annual number of new HIV infections has remained relatively stable. That probably has to do with all the innovations in pharmacology and medicine that help people live longer and live better quality lives while suffering with HIV. And I think a good example of um, how people are able to live better quality lives uh, with HIV is probably Magic Johnson. Yet another straight guy who uh, contracted HIV. And I'm scrolling down a bit. And once again, it reiterates the fact that African Americans continue to be disproportionately affected. I don't want to bring the show down too much. There's some stats on AIDS deaths. Uh, an estimated 13,834 people with an AIDS diagnosis died in 2011. And approximately... 648,000 people in the United States with an AIDS diagnosis have overall. Yeah, so, so it has a chart for the estimated new HIV infections in the United States. This is for 2010. Um, it's giving the stats for the most affected subpopulations. So at the top of the list, they have white males who engage in sex with other uh, men, 11,200 uh, infections from 2010. Right under there is... Um, black uh, gay men, uh, underneath that, uh, Hispanic or Latino gay men, and then black heterosexual women are next, uh, with 5,300 new cases in 2010. Uh, black heterosexual men right under there. So by risk group, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Well, I'm trying to think who else is having sex with men besides gay and bisexual men. It reminds me of a new show, a reality, I shouldn't be laughing, a new reality show that's supposedly coming to like TLC or Discovery or something like that about supposedly straight men who are attracted to other men. And I think it has some kind of outrageous title like My Husband's Not Gay or something like that. And I'm trying to think if it was Mormons, but it had to do with guys who were married to women and yet we're attracted to men. So to me, it sounds like they're talking about repressed homosexuals. <laughs> um, 
it sounds like it'd probably make for a great train wreck of a reality show, but it's kind of sad that the guys um, are suppressing their uh, own nature. Yeah, but anyway, so gay, bisexual, and uh, according to the CDC, other men who have sex with men, all right, of all races and ethnicities remain the population most profoundly affected by HIV. But then it also says heterosexuals and injection drug users also continue to be affected by HIV. Since the epidemic began, almost 89,683 persons with an AIDS diagnosis infected through heterosexual sex have died, included an estimated 3,516 in 2011. So for those people who want to try to say that's a quote-unquote gay disease, there you have over 3,000 heterosexuals um, dying in 2011 alone. New HIV infections among women are primarily attributed to heterosexual contact, 84% in 2010, or injection drug use, 16% in 2010. So there we see, I mean, although, yeah, the, the numbers are disproportionately high for gay or bisexual males, but as we see, heterosexual men, uh, women, uh, people struggling with uh, drug addiction also fall victim to uh, HIV AIDS. So hopefully no one listening out there thinks that I'm justifying Donnie Romero's bigoted anti-gay comments by stating that, yeah, the numbers are higher among gay uh, men because I'm actually trying to do the opposite (laughs) to show that AIDS is a human problem and anyone can become infected. Um, But at the same time, I feel like I have a duty to you guys and to be honest and to give you the facts. Well, there you have it. And I shouldn't even have to say it, but AIDS is just one of many uh, all-too-earthly viruses, not a plague from God. And hypothetically, if there was a God who would smite the world with such a disease because he doesn't like what some people do with their private parts, would he even be a God worth worshipping? I don't think so. And we should remember that this is basically the planet of the microbes, not the planet of the apes, but the planet of the microbes. There's all sorts of single-celled and multicellular microscopic organisms out there, although I guess there's some point of contention over whether to classify viruses as microscopic organisms, since not all scientists consider them to actually be alive. Yeah, but the uh, microbes definitely have us outnumbered. Uh, And here's a kind of a fun fact from popular science. How much bacteria do people carry around? And I know that bacteria is different than a virus. Um, Enough to fill a big soup can. That's three to five pounds of bacteria, says Lita Proctor, the program coordinator of the National Institutes of Health's Human Microbiome Project which studies the communities of bacteria living on and in us. The bacteria cells in our body outnumber human cells 10 to 1, she says. But because they are much smaller than human cells, they account for only about 1 to 2% of our body mass, though they do make up about half of our body's waste. Have I grossed you out yet? (laughs) A soup can of bacteria. I wonder what that looks like. What would happen if you took a sip? I wonder if it would get you drunk. Drunker than a woodchuck cider. But anyway, uh, well, continuing with the corrections, uh, mea culpas, etc. And uh, mea culpa, I always use that term. Wikipedia time. Mea culpa is a Latin phrase that translates into English as through my fault. 
It is repeated three times in the prayer of confession at the Catholic Mass. Mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Maxima culpa, you must be doing something really bad, man. Um, but anyway, back to the mia culpas. Um, I'd like to apologize for, I guess, what I would call overzealous editing, uh, cutting the ends off of some of my sentences, my adjectives and adverbs, etc. Uh, my apologies, over 130 episodes in, and I'm still trying to master the basics of editing. Uh, but still, I guess not too bad for one guy, though, I hope. Um, and another lighthearted correction. So I just re-released the 2012 Christmas special entitled A Brief History of Christmas. A mistake I meant to correct last year slipped by me again. If you listen to the part where I'm talking about the origins of the Yule Log, you can hear the crackling of a fire in the background. Pretty slick, right? Until you realize it's a campfire sound effect, complete with crickets chirping. The problem? Crickets don't chirp in the winter. Maybe I'm being way too obsessive or uh, overly critical here. But anyway, so it sounds like I'm sitting around a summer campfire talking about Odin and Yule Log. Oh well. I plan on taking it out for next year. I also plan on turning uh, that ep and the one about... Oh, did I really just say ep? Does anyone else say ep? Short for episode? Is that pretentious? I don't know. And one, <laughs> anyway, I also plan on turning that episode and the one about the Companions of St. Nicholas into audio documentaries and hopefully selling them on iTunes at some point. I'm definitely going to have to polish them a bit before that, though. I'm still proud of the content. I put a lot of effort into those scripts. Uh, it's just the uh, editing and the effects, I guess, that need some uh, tightening up. But anyway, upwards and onwards. So it's funny. I release a show weekly. Some people you know, only release uh, an episode every month, uh, other podcasters or whatever. But even though I do release one every week, I still feel sometimes that I'm struggling to cover stories while they're still relevant. And recently, there was just a flood of stories having to do with Islamic fundamentalism. First, we have what's come to be known as the Sydney siege or Sydney hostage crisis. Back on the 15th into the 16th of December, a gunman held a bunch of people hostage inside a Lint chocolate cafe at Martin Place in Sydney, Australia. There was an ensuing 16-hour standoff with law enforcement. Ultimately, two hostages died. Uh, at least one was shot by this uh, Islamic fundamentalist hostage uh, taker by the name of Haron Monis, I, I, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, one of the other hostages, unfortunately, may have died in the exchange of gunfire, possibly by police. Uh, I don't know if it's been sorted out yet. And the uh, hostage taker himself was uh, shot dead. I'm not going to uh, shed any tears over him. And there's some really disturbing images. He was making people stand in the window of the cafe for prolonged periods of time, holding uh, an Islamic flag, and it's also known that the guy had priors, I think, having to do with sexual assault. And he also had a history of sending nasty letters to the family members of fallen Australian soldiers. 
So that was one case. Then technically the same day as that Australian incident, uh, because the Sydney siege crossed over from the 15th to the 16th, uh, also on the 16th, we had a Taliban attack on a Pakistani school in which 141 people were murdered. Supposedly 132 of the victims were children. Well, I, I think the others were mostly teachers. And uh, this was in uh, Peshawar, to, to be specific. So it was a small number of militants, and they just went to the school and mowed these innocent people down like they were nothing. And there's some disturbing images on the net and uh, in the news that just shows the blood-soaked aftermath. All the walls riddled with bullets, the floors slick with blood. And so there's yet another um, example of Islamic fundamentalist violence. Then just uh, a couple of days ago, uh, December 21st, uh, at least this is when this article was published, and I'm reading from the UK-based uh, Daily Mail. I'm, I'm not that familiar with the Daily Mail. I know uh, some of my listeners are across the pond. Russ Ray. <laughs> so you guys might be more familiar with the Daily Mail and what kind of reputation it has, but there's a bunch of articles that basically convey the same facts. So I'm, I'm just going with the Daily Mail here. Islamic terrorists Boko Haram massacre civilians while describing them as infidels in horrific video. Footage shows terrorists shooting civilians lying face down on floor. There are so many corpses, the gunmen have difficulty stepping over them. Thousands of people have been killed in the five-year insurgency. And then the article... Uh, those were kind of the bullet points. Um, a new video from Nigeria's homegrown Boko Haram extremist shows gunmen mowing down civilians lying face down in a dormitory and a leader saying they are being killed because they are infidels or non-believers. Ah, that's how I always describe myself, non-believer. Good thing I ain't there. Uh, there are so many corpses, the gunmen have difficulty stepping to reach bodies still twitching with life. Most appear to be adult men. We have made sure the floor of this hall is turned red with blood, and this is how it is going to be in all future attacks and arrest of infidels, the group leader says in a message. From now, killing, slaughtering, destruction, and bombing will be our religious duty anywhere we invade. Okay, so we have that handful of recent grisly news stories. Uh, and then, of course, we know about it wasn't that long ago that we had that slew of news stories about uh, journalists being beheaded by uh, Islamic extremists one after another. The, the stories came out. And so I don't even know what I'm about to say. <laughs> OK, I'm going to try to analyze all this. And the reason why I wanted to talk about it, other than the fact that this is a show that focuses on religion and specifically what's wrong with religion, in, in my view at least. Um, I, I also wanted to talk about it because the whole time while I was hearing these stories, in my head I was thinking about that recent debacle that happened on Real Time with Bill Maher. Uh, what was that, a couple of months ago? I don't know the way time flies. Where we had Ben Affleck 
on the one side uh, clashing with uh, Bill Maher and Sam Harris on the other side. And then after that, uh, Sam Harris uh, went on the Young Turks and did like a three-hour interview. And it was pretty contentious at times. And uh, I was pretty honest uh, when I was kind of covering those stories, how even though I'm a huge fan of the Young Turks, I felt like the Turks were starting down kind of the slippery slope where they were kind of drinking the PC Kool-Aid and over-apologizing for um, Islam. Uh, And like I've said before on the show, you name a religion, and if I'm familiar with it, I can tell you things I like about it. And I know long before 9-11, you know, I'm someone that, uh, I guess when I was younger, even though I, I would say I wasn't familiar with the term when I was a teenager, you know, but when I look back in retrospect, I was probably an agnostic atheist for a long time. But when I first kind of closed the coffin lid on the uh, idea of a personal God, um, you know, I I went through a really tough time where uh, I had a lot of existential angst where, you know, when people try to say that atheists kind of pretend to be atheists, they really know there's a God deep down. They just don't want to admit it. You know, for me, it was the opposite. I, I was born and raised Catholic and I wanted to believe, but from a young age, my reason told me that, you know, something's not right here. Um, and the more I learned about world history, the more I learned about world religion, the more I learned about mythology, the more I, I started to really come to the conclusion that living religions, including the one I was indoctrinated into, are basically no different than those dead religions we now call mythology. Um, or mythologies. And that caused, at times, a lot of kind of angst and despair for me. Even though my reason was telling me not to believe, the idea that there might not be a god, that there might not be an afterlife, was horrible. I couldn't think of anything worse than that. But at the same time, I almost felt this kind of weird moral duty or felt honor-bound to myself to pursue the truth and not just stay with religion so I could be kind of placated um, or pacified. And I've said before on the show, I think I have a kind of religious zeal for the truth. I want to know the real answers to the big questions. How do we get here? What happens after we die? Uh, The nature of consciousness. Uh, Is there a higher power? Um, I don't just want to accept the superstitious religious answers. I want to know what the actual truth is. And so the horrible idea that there may not be a God or an afterlife caused a lot of despair for me um, for a while. But eventually I became kind of inured to the idea of my own mortality. I think it's like anything. You can get used to anything after a while. Um, So I don't know why I'm going off on this tangent now. But... Oh, I I know what it is. (laughs) So anyway, um, after struggling with all that stuff, you know, when my reason led me to a conclusion that the supernatural claims of the religion I was born into, as well as the rest of the world's religions, are most likely not true, I still entered this kind of seeker mode where where I really dove deep into uh, philosophy and Eastern religion and things like that. 
And I almost like to think of uh, Buddhism for me, uh, the way it functioned for me is almost being like training wheels for atheism. I think Eastern religion and philosophy, things like uh, Buddhism, Taoism, um, things like that, helped me realize that you could have kind of a spiritual outlook without needing to believe in a creator God in the Western sense. Uh, but of course, I don't believe in the supernatural claims of Eastern religions any more than I do Western religions. But I've incorporated a lot of the kind of um, principles and teachings of Buddhism into my life, even though I'm uh, an agnostic atheist. Uh, but things like an emphasis on compassion towards all living beings, um, the idea of kind of pursuing a sense of oneness through the dissolution of the ego, stuff like that I still kind of hold dear. and They've kind of become a part of me. But when I was in my seeker phase, I, um, I'm still a big world music fan, but I got into music from all different cultures all over the world. I got into poetry and literature from all different cultures. To this day, one of my favorite poets is uh, Jaladin Rumi. You know, Rumi, the famous... Uh, Sufi Muslim poet uh, from the Middle Ages. Um, I still love a lot of Islamic music and art. So it's not like I'm some rabid Islamophobe or, or something like that. There's still things I like about Islam. Um, and I think even as Cenk Uger likes to bring up, one of the positive things about Islam is the emphasis that on the fact that it's a belief system that's open to everyone. At least ideally, there's not supposed to be any bigotry uh, based on ethnicity or race. But the problem is, in order to be part of the group, you have to believe in their religion. Um, so that sounds kind of nice, um, superficially. You know, it's this belief system that's open to everyone. Um, no one gets discriminated against because of uh, race or ethnicity or whatever. But you do get discriminated against, <laughs> at least by fundamentalists, if you don't embrace their religion. Uh, then you're an infidel. And you, we can see what happens to infidels based on those last few stories. But I, I did feel like um, Cenk Uger and some of the... Uh, out atheists that the Young Turks, like John Iderola, uh, etc., kind of did sip the uh, PC Kool-Aid. Um, I'm not saying that we have to bash Islam and say that all Muslims embrace a wicked religion. I don't believe in the supernatural claims of their religion. Um, I think there's some really ugly stuff in Islamic holy text, just like I think there's some really ugly stuff in uh, the Old Testament. And a little bit in the New Testament, too. We have that lurid book we call uh, Revelation, which uh, supposedly penned by a character named uh, John of Padmos in exile. Um, and as I understand it, um, and I've said this a few times on the show in the past, that Supposedly, according to the biblical scholars that I've heard speak about it, the only reason why the book of Revelation might actually be in the New Testament is because of a case of mistaken identity. It was thought that it was written by John the Apostle. Uh, it turns out it was written by another John. And, um, 
someone living in exile on the island of Padmos. Um, and it's a pretty uh, kind of lurid, blood-soaked book, kind of very bizarre and at times violent imagery. And uh, even at times, um, Jesus, who we, for the most part, tend to look at it as this kind of social justice uh, type of figure, um, not in keeping with with the warrior messiah ideal of um, that we see embodied by uh, King David in the Old Testament. But still, sometimes Jesus says some things to that kind of unpalatable or make you raise an eyebrow and think twice, you know. But yeah, but I think the Quran and the Old Testament have kind of a kind of comparable in um, the kind of antiquated barbarism that we can find in those books sometimes. Is there also some inspirational stuff? Sure. So I'm not saying that we should outlaw religion. We should outlaw Islam. I, I do believe the majority of Muslims are probably some good, normal people, the way the majority of Christians are probably good, normal people uh, who perhaps even have this kind of uh, cafeteria Catholic approach, you know, where they kind of embrace the more noble bits and they kind of um, push the uglier stuff to the side. But I, I, that being said, I did feel like the Young Turks and some others were kind of um, taking up the apologist mantle. And when I, when I heard these stories uh, break, the hostage crisis in um, Sydney, the 130-something-odd children mowed down in Pakistan, uh, Boko Haram um, also slaughtering people on Mars. Um, it made me think, well, where does this leave, where does this leave us in this debate? What does this tell us uh, about this recent debate that was going on um, about whether or not it's right to criticize Islam? Um, and it's funny, you know, the day that the Sydney incident broke out, I was watching the Young Turks and Cenk Uger was talking about he was kind of playing the apologist game again. And I hate saying that because I like Cenk Uger a lot and I love the Young Turks. But, and usually one of the things I like about them is their intellectual honesty, but it, there's something smacked of intellectual dishonesty or kind of willful ignorance to me. He was ta- trying to describe that Sydney gunman as just a lone nut. And if this had been a white guy who just happened to be Christian, We'd say it was just a lone nut. We wouldn't say that it was terrorism or that it was Islamic fundamentalism. And I'm thinking, wait, this is a guy who penned letters or wrote or sent emails to the families of dead soldiers and said some pretty ugly stuff because he didn't think that the soldiers should be in the Middle East fighting Muslims. Whatever you think of the the wars going on in the Middle East... um, and I'm not going to go off on a tangent about what I think about the Iraq war and what a mess that turned out to be and our drone policies, etc. Um, but this guy obviously had a problem with the soldiers being over there and engaging with Muslims on, uh, on religious grounds. Um, this guy had a religious chip on his shoulder. That's why he was email, emailing the families of these uh, fallen soldiers. So we know that about him. And supposedly, I think this guy was labeled an apostate in Iran, where he's originally from. And uh, even by 
Iranian standards, I guess he was, you know, he was some kind of uh, wing nut, but a religious wing nut, you know. And, uh, and then we know he made the hostages hold up an Islamic flag in the window of the store. You know what I mean? The, the guy was obviously heavily motivated by religion. So Jenk Uger trying to say that he was just a lone nut. That's all there is to it. If it was a white guy who happened to be a Christian, we'd say just, well, I, I tell you what, if it was a white guy who's part of some Christian militia or someone with like a Westboro Baptist church mentality, and they were making people hold up signs that say God hates fags or signs that had ugly bits from the book of Leviticus uh, on it or um, hold made people hold up a flag with uh, a cross on it or, or whatever. Um, I'd say that person was motivated by religion too. It might be different if someone commits a school shooting and they happen to have a cross on their neck, but it's kind of ornamental and they never go to church or anything like that or talk about religion, then maybe the person is just alone, not some kind of psychopath. Um, but in this case, looks like the guy was fueled by religion, at least in part. Um, and then the next day, Jenk was covering the story that broke after the fact about the uh, all the students that were butchered in that Pakistani school. And uh, to his credit, he kind of changed his tune. All of a sudden, he was chiding religious fundamentalists and saying how we have to get rid of religious fundamentalism. That's the problem. And I, I think that's the problem too. And uh, so th in that case, we're on the same page. There's some beautiful things about religion, but Islamic fundamentalism, that's something I think the world would be a lot better off without. And that should go without saying. But it was kind of interesting. And I was thinking to myself, how come the one day Jenk was kind of being a bit of an apologist and saying, well, this is just uh, a lone nut. And the next day, you know, you add, uh, it was a small group of militants, so maybe a little band or flock of nuts. You know, <laughs> why does he suddenly go to, uh-oh, this is f religious fundamentalism. And I, I don't know what was going through his head. I can't read minds, but my guess was there must have been to some degree maybe a little bit of a light dawns on Marblehead moment, as we say here in New England and perhaps elsewhere, and where he said, wow, there's a rash of uh, news stories breaking concerning people doing violence, at least according to those people themselves, the perpetrators, in the name of Islam, in the name of religion. And maybe he thought to himself that, wow, you know, maybe he kind of came back to his senses and said, we do have a problem with fundamentalism or there is something wrong with um, the interpretation of Islam, at least that's being embraced by uh, extremists. And like I said, I don't think we should outlaw religion. Uh, I don't think we should outlaw Islam, but I think we should be intellectually honest and just like I like to say about Christianity or um, the Judeo-Christian tradition as a whole, yeah, there's some good stuff in it. Yeah, sometimes religion can be a motivation for doing good, whether it be you know charity or things like that. Um, but just because there's some good things in it, and just because you can choose a moderate interpretation, doesn't mean that that ugly stuff isn't in there. It is in there. The... Um, 
all the stories about God-ordained genocides in the Old Testament, all the injunctions about killing people for everything from disrespecting your parents, for, uh, for adultery, um, for quote-unquote witchcraft. All that stuff is in there. Just like there's a lot of stuff about how infidels should be dealt with and prescriptions about how you should treat your slaves, just like even if you take a moderate approach to Islam, it doesn't change the fact that there's some nasty stuff about how one should deal with infidels or what rights or what liberties a man can take with his female slaves. All that stuff is in there too. And yeah, we can kind of go in circles and we can say that in Islamic tradition, supposedly one of the greatest things you can do is to liberate a slave. But that doesn't change the fact that there's still some ugly stuff in there about how you're allowed to interact with your slaves, especially your female slaves. And yeah, we can say that the stuff about smiting the necks of the unbelievers, that could be referring to certain military conflicts like the Battle of Badr and stuff like that. But I think there's numerous instances in the Quran where it talks about um, smiting infidels, etc. So like I said, going into this, I, I didn't know what my take was going to be or what I was going to say. But I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think I'm crystallizing an opinion here. <laughs> you know, it's probably a pretty common sense one that we can probably all be on the same page, that the world will be a much better place without religious fundamentalism of all stripes, Christian, Islamic, etc. Um, but I also think what we can learn from all this is that we can't be so PC that we put our heads in the sand and pretend that all this violence isn't at least in part inspired by religion. And I can't believe I almost forgot about this. Roughly around the same time those other stories broke, um, ISIS, the, the um, fundamentalist group themselves, uh, released this kind of pamphlet instructing its members or uh, followers about how to handle their female slaves, what's permissible and what's not. And we know that both ISIS and Boko Haram these two extremist groups have both been taking uh, women captive as slaves. And there's a bunch of kind of questions and answers here. Some of the questions, and this is in their own words, this is from their pamphlet. If a man dies, what is the law regarding the female captive he owned? May a man have intercourse with the female slave of his wife? And here's one that really kind of made my jaw drop. And uh, it's pretty disturbing. Is it permissible to have intercourse with a female slave who has not reached puberty? It is permissible to have intercourse with a female slave who hasn't reached puberty if she is fit for intercourse, whatever that means. However, if she is not fit for intercourse, then it is enough to enjoy her without intercourse. Um, nasty stuff, man. That goes on, what private parts of the female slave's body must be concealed during prayer? Um, may a female slave meet foreign men without wearing a hijab? Can two sisters be taken together while taking slaves? And then it goes into a series of questions and answers having to do with something called Al-Azal or something like that. 
Um, may a man use the Alazal technique with his female slave? And it says right in the pamphlet, what that basically means is uh, coitus interruptus. Uh, pardon the graphic language, but in the pamphlet itself, it says um, refraining from ejaculating on a woman's pedendum. So it goes into all this awful stuff that at the very end, like I was saying, it goes into uh, what is the reward for freeing a slave girl? It talks about how freeing a slave is the greatest thing you can do, right? But what was the other 99% of the pamphlet all about that told you in the ways that you the ways that you can sexually use and dominate the female slave. Um, it seems to me they're probably much more interested in using the female slave for their own pleasure than they are with freeing the female slave. I haven't heard a lot of stories about Boko Haram or ISIS freeing female slaves. But I'll let you uh, think about that one. A lot of food for thought, I guess. So I guess I'll end the show here. So uh, thanks for listening. You guys know the drill. Please like the show on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter. You can subscribe or rate the show through iTunes. Um, you can subscribe to the show through Podbean and check out the archives there. Uh, if you feel generous, you can donate to the show at the official Podbean page. Um, just look for the Weekend Out at Podbean. You can use the PayPal widget to donate as little as 99 cents. And I feel weird saying this after all that gruesome stuff but happy holidays um maybe i'll leave you with another christmas tune going out